One more time, he is risen. He is risen Amen. Well, good morning, Stafford Baptist Church, and happy, happy Resurrection Sunday. It is a delight to be gathered with you again this Lord's Day, this Sunday, to worship our risen Savior. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving here as, as one of the elders of Stafford Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us especially, I would, I would love to get a chance to, to greet you, uh, meet with you, so please find me in the, the lobby after our service this morning. If you would, please open in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Matthew 14 on the, the Bibles we provide for you there in the pew on page 820. This morning we'll be studying Matthew 14, 1 through 12, recognizing Jesus. Matthew 14, 1 through 12. But, but before we continue, would you please pray with me once more for our, for our hearing and for the proclaiming of, of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the valley of our darkness, in the darkness of, of evil and death, Praying, Lord, that you would show to us the light of the world. We pray, Lord, this morning that through your word you would shine your light on us, the light of the gospel, of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, conqueror of death, victory in life. We pray, especially this morning, as we consider the death of John the Baptist, that we would see that Jesus Christ is more than just prophet, but the Son of God to deliver us from our death. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, at 517 on January 30th, 1948, Mahatma Gandhi was on his way to address a prayer meeting in the house he was staying at. When a Hindu nationalist fired three bullets into his chest at close range. He died about 30 minutes later as one of his family members read verses from the Hindu scriptures to him. You'll know from history that that Gandhi had spent much of his life opposing British colonial rule of India peacefully protesting against discrimination and and oppression, working for civil rights and for national independence. So you can get a sense of how significant his violent death was for his nation, for the people of of India, especially in the words of the, the prime minister who addressed his nation in the wake of Gandhi's death. He said this, friends and comrades, the light has gone out of our lives and there is darkness everywhere. And I do not quite know what to tell you or how to say it. Our beloved leader, Bapu, as we called him, the father of the nation is no more. Perhaps I am wrong to say that. Nevertheless, we will not see him again as we have seen him for these many years. We will not run to him for advice or seek solace from him. And that is a terrible blow, not only for me, but for millions and millions in this country. 
You hear the, the prime minister comparing Gandhi's death to a light going out for our lives. A terrible blow, he says, for millions and millions. You might compare this tragedy to similar that we've experienced in our own nation. Maybe, maybe the assassination of Abraham Lincoln or of Martin Luther King Jr., It it seems to be human nature for us to invest our hopes in a political figure and for them to far too often be violently eliminated by their opposition. And of course it forces us to consider this morning, is there a more durable place for our hopes? If religious and political leaders are so easily defeated, is there someone we can trust that never will fail, never disappoint, that will ultimately have victory over every enemy and opposition. Our passage this morning is the the brief account of the death of a prophet, the righteous prophet John, killed by his opponents, by the political powers. John the Baptist, executed by the governor of Galilee, Herod. So even as this passage this morning will teach us about how the world opposes righteousness and of the true darkness of evil, it calls on us to compare John to a greater prophet, Jesus. And where the righteous John was defeated by evil, Jesus conquers evil and even death. To please read with me this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, Starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted him to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus the word of the Lord. Well, let's start with the headline up front this morning. What's the main point of this passage? What's, what's the key takeaway? It's, it's this. The evil and death that has defeated every righteous prophet has been conquered for us in Jesus. The evil and death that has defeated every righteous prophet has been conquered for us in Jesus. I, I hope you immediately see how this text is a wonderful meditation for us, this Resurrection Sunday. The, the tragic death of John invites us to compare him to Jesus, the one and only prophet to go through the grave and defeat death. 
And his victory over evil and death is now given to all who come to him in faith. The evil and death that has defeated every righteous prophet has been conquered for us in Jesus. So I hope, brothers and sisters, as we consider this morning the violent end of John the Baptist and his body laid in the grave, that we receive renewed hope in Jesus' victory over that grave. But as we begin this morning, some context. We need to know who we're dealing with. So two questions as we start. Who is Herod and who is John the Baptist? Our our passage begins with a a vague time marker. At that time, during this period of Jesus' ministry, Herod hears of the fame of Jesus. So our first task this morning is to understand who is this Herod guy? Who is Herod? You might recognize his name. Maybe if you read this week of the, the Holy Week accounts of Jesus' life, this is the one who would later examine Jesus, and though he would mock him, found no guilt in him. Well, Matthew here calls him Tetrarch, there in verse 1. The title comes from the Greek words for the number four, and the word for ruler. He is one of the rulers of, of Palestine. We might compare him to a modern-day governor. He's a a Roman official over a small province. What gets confusing for readers of the Bible is that his dad's name was Herod II. That's the the Herod of Matthew II of the Christmas stories. You remember the one who hears of the birth of a king and therefore kills all the children in Bethlehem? Well, that, that Herod... This Herod's dad was particularly known for his his paranoia, that he would lose his kingdom. Hence, him trying to kill the one who was born king of the Jews. He would end up killing many of his own sons and, and wives that he suspected of mutiny. But this one, this Herod, now Tetrarch, survives his mad dad, and after his dad's death, becomes ruler of a small part of his kingdom. In particular, he is ruler of the part where John and Jesus are conducting their their ministries in Galilee. Well, that's how our passage begins. This governor hears about Jesus, the mighty works that he has been doing. From the beginning, Matthew has been describing Jesus' fame as spreading throughout the whole region, far beyond even Galilee. Great crowds are following him and seeking him out because of his growing popularity. Jesus, as we've studied in Matthew, has been healing leprosy, paralysis, fever. He's been raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. He has displayed command over all powers, over wind and waves and and demons. And he has been teaching with authority and wisdom, astonishing those who hear. And Herod hears about it too. But what does Herod assume here when he hears of it? Well, he gets confused about the identity of Jesus. Look back at at verse 2. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. Who he hears about, he claims to be John the Baptist. These great miracles and works... 
he claims, is John the Baptist. So our, our second question, who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? He's shown up a few times in Matthew's Gospel account. All of Matthew 3 is a description of his, his early ministry, that he came from the wilderness preaching repentance and baptizing in the Jordan. He was the one that the, the prophet Isaiah predicted, the one to come to prepare the way of the Lord. We learn in the, the Gospel of John, named after a, a different John, he, he is called a witness to the light, but not the light himself. And Jesus himself calls, calls John a prophet. In fact, he claims that, that from women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. So John is a, a prophet of righteousness, calling for people to repent and go to the light. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world. You might recall that we last heard about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. There we learn simply that he was in prison. But Matthew doesn't tell us why. Well, here finally in chapter 14, we have the answer. But we have to backtrack in order to get there. First, in verse 2, the righteous prophet is thought to be risen from the dead. Herod hears of these miraculous powers and he assumes that it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now we know when, when John was alive, he did no miracles. John chapter 10 verse 41 puts it simply. John did no sign. He just preached and baptized. So notice Herod's superstition here in verse 2. He assumes that it's a resurrection from the dead that now grants John the power to do these miracles. So just to be clear, in case you're already lost in the details, Herod hears of Jesus and he's attributing these miracles to John the Baptist. He hears of Jesus' work and says it's John back from the dead. Well, what happened? This is the first we're hearing of, of John being dead. We don't even know why he's in prison, let alone that he's dead. Well, that's, that's the rest of what our passage teaches us. That's what Matthew explains for us. He, he backtracks to explain why John was in prison in the first place and how his life ended. So with that, that context in place, we have, we're ready to consider our first point this morning. Our first point, righteousness opposed. Righteousness opposed. So we learn, going back now in verse 3, Herod had seized and imprisoned the prophet. This is before even Matthew 11. Herod seized and imprisoned the prophet. Why? Well, verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. That is Herodias. Herod had married his brother's wife. Well, John, as a, a prophet of righteousness, knows that God's law explicitly forbids marrying your sibling's wife. Leviticus 20, 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. And more than that, we know from other sources that, that both Herod and Herodias had divorced their spouses in order to get married to one another. So as determined 
by God's holy standard, what Herod and his wife were doing was unlawful. It was against God's command and therefore sin. It was sexual immorality. John, as a faithful preacher of righteousness and repentance, condemns it. Just as he, in in Luke 3, called tax collectors to, to collect no more than they're authorized. Or he called for soldiers not to extort money. So he calls even on the governor to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John, the righteous prophet, is consistent to condemn sin and call people to recognize it and repent of it, both to the lowly soldier and to the exalted governor. And how does Herod respond to Herod's to sorry to John's condemnation? With recognition of his sin against God and repentance, fleeing to God for mercy? No, he opposes God's righteousness and his righteous servant. He attempts to silence him, to preserve his own power. He arrests him and imprisons him. Verse 3. This shouldn't be surprising for us as we follow along in the ministry of Jesus. In teaching on his kingdom, Jesus has announced blessing on those who suffer like is typical for prophets. Prophets suffer. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is how they typically treated prophets. This is the pattern of life too in his kingdom. As they treated the prophets, so they will treat us. You might think of the great biblical illustration of this in Elijah, the prophet Elijah, who, like John, confronted the ruling powers, right? He confronted the king Ahaz and his wife Jezebel. He, he condemned them for worshiping false gods, And how did the king respond? Well, initiating a massive manhunt for Elijah, for his life. Ultimately, Elijah is spared, but this is just par for course. The righteous prophets are opposed. You know, it would be a great use of your evening after an Easter meal and you need some rest to to read through the story of Elijah. It's only eight chapters, 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 2. And note how merciful God is to Elijah, even in the midst of terrible threats and terrible opposition. And we see that despite the danger, despite knowing that what he was saying was not popular, neither Elijah nor John shrank back from addressing evil and calling for repentance. The question for us is, are are we willing to do the same? Do you understand that friendship with God is to be an enemy of the world? You you can't have your feet in both. You can't serve two masters. True righteousness will be opposed by this world. 
And that means when we take a stand on righteousness, we will be hated by the world. Maybe it's your, your co-workers or your non-Christian family or, or neighbors. For your refusal to participate in crude joking or one-upmanship in the office or to support sexual sin. Maybe it's because of your persistent urging for them to repent of sin. And remember, the prophets weren't opposed because they were jerks or or self-righteous. Jesus says very specifically, blessed are you when they utter evil against you falsely. Right? If they want to say evil of us, they must make it up. So as we look to the example of John this morning, brothers and sisters, take strength. It is not as if something strange were happening to you. So too happened to John and all who stand for righteousness. But rejoice, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. All who follow Jesus will be opposed by the world and some even will be killed. We learn in in verse 5 that Herod wanted to kill John for his standing on righteousness, but but he was kept from it. We see there in verse 5, because he feared the people. He's torn between two options. He doesn't want John threatening his, his position and power by condemning him, but he knows that by eliminating the prophet, that also can threaten his opinion with the people. Again, verse 5 calls this fear of the people. He's not motivated by what's right, but what will earn his approval. He doesn't fear God, but what man can do to him. Jeopardize his power. But there's a dreadful word at the start of verse 6. But, despite Herod's desire to put him to death, but unwillingness because of his fear of the people, circumstances force his hand so our second point this morning our second point this morning we've seen righteousness opposed now righteousness defeated righteousness defeated if the first part of our passage explained why john was in prison now we learn why it ended with his execution and it starts of all things with a birthday party At his birthday party, it says that his stepdaughter provides the entertainment. Her dancing delights Herod, so he makes a rash vow in verse 7. It says he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. What might a young girl ask for, you think? A new wardrobe. I want a a pony, Dad. Well, no, her, her mother calls her in her evil scheme. Uh, apparently she shares her husband's hatred of John's righteousness, but she does not share John's fear of what John's death might mean. So she, she uses her daughter as a pawn in her scheme, prompting her to ask for the head of John on a platter. Well, now Herod is in a difficult position. He fears John, right? As a righteous and holy man, he he knows that he is held by the masses in honor as a prophet. 
But he just made a vow before all his noble guests to give his stepdaughter whatever she asked. And again, the question of what is right doesn't even enter Herod's mind. It's a, it's a question of what people will think of him. And now he's caught between two options. What the masses think, who hold John to be a prophet, and what his powerful guests will think, who heard his vow. Herod is not controlled by what is good and true, but the opinions of mere men. Proverbs 29.25 warns us, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear of man, it says, being controlled by other people, is a trap. It's, it's a danger. It will lead you either to, do, to not do the things the Bible commands, or to do the things the Bible forbids. We remember this week that it's fear of man that led Peter to deny Christ three times. It's fear of man that led Pilate to cave to the crowds, calling out, crucify him. It's often why we find it hard to speak up with the gospel or against sin. We fear people. People's opinions of us, rather than obedience to God, is what motivates those who fear man. And and the answer isn't to become callous to people, unfeeling to what they think of us. No, it's to fear God more. It's to realize that God's opinion is the only one that truly matters. If you are in Christ, you are eternally secure. The, The verdict has already been announced. In God's sight, by faith in Christ, you are vindicated and justified. Men can do nothing to you. You are free to do what is good and right, whatever others think of you. The only opinion that matters can never be changed because of Christ. So I I wonder this morning as we think of the fear of man and how it controlled Herod to do evil, is there someone that you have not spoken to because... Because of fear. Right, right now, as, as you listen, thank God that their opinion of you offers nothing that God hasn't already given in Christ. And pray now. Asking God to help you to love that person. Not fear them. To speak to them of the gospel. Or to warn them of their sin. Love them and speak. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You are safe. They cannot take from you anything you have that truly matters. And they cannot give to you anything you truly need. Trust in the Lord. You are safe. But Herod gives no thought to God here. It's his guest's opinion of him that that wins out. In this battle between opinions. And and verse 9 says that with sadness, because of his guests, he commands the death to be carried out. As simple as that, his servants behead John. They bring it to the girl and the girl to her mother. And John's devoted disciples, 
the same ones who had been delivering messages for him about Jesus, now come to finally gather his body and bury it. And that's it. That's the end of our passage. Righteousness apparently defeated. Like the news of Mahatma Gandhi's death, it would leave his disciples feeling as if the light has gone out in the world, darkness everywhere. Frankly, the the darkness in our passage is, is overwhelming. Herod has been guilty of sexual immorality, of of fear of man, and and now murder. And I want to suggest, as much as we're called to be like John, righteously opposing evil, we all are truly more like Herod. Well, you might eject. I have, have never been guilty of such sins But consider for a moment the reason behind all his more visible evils. Ultimately, the motivation behind everything that Herod does is a desire to be the sun at the center of his solar system. He wants everything and everyone to revolve around him. what, What he wants and when he wants it. So when John refuses to orbit around him, He must be silenced and eliminated. Can we not honestly say that we are different? That we have never lusted after something that is forbidden? Never been angry at those who got in our way? Never acted out of fear of man rather than fear of God? Have we not also lived as if we were the center of of the solar system, that everyone else needs to orbit around us, do what we want, the way we want it. The sin behind all of our sin is the same, our desire to be like God, to put ourselves at the center. And even if we haven't murdered those who oppose us, we still are angry at them. You know, that's why Adam and Eve took the apple. How did the servant tempt them? You will be like God. And and since our first parents, all of mankind has had the same disease. A rejection of God at the rightful center as we crash into everyone around us in the, the chaotic courses of our sin. We all, not just Herod, we all, Isaiah 53, 6 says, have gone astray like planets out of orbit. Each of us has turned to our own way. So the difference between you and I and Herod is not of kind. It's simply degrees. I wonder, what's the darkest place you've ever been? The darkest place you've ever been? Studies have shown that the darkest place on earth with the, the least light pollution are the Canary, Canary Islands off the coast of Africa. But the darkest place on earth is exactly where we decided to put an observatory with dozens of telescopes because the darkest place makes it the best place to see distant lights. Friends, I think the darkness of our passage this morning... The evil of Herod and the death of John makes it the best 
place to see distant lights. Did you notice at the end that the disciples go and tell Jesus in verse 12? In the darkness of this moment, why go tell Jesus? Well, it's because there is a distant light. Not quite clear, but that one day will shine bright. Like John, Jesus one day will be unjustly seized and bound because of his preaching against sin. And the rulers, too, will fear because the crowds hold him to be a prophet and so are reluctant to have him killed because he is a holy and righteous man. And despite having done nothing evil and being found innocent, he will be killed by the Roman authorities Again, out of fear of man. And his disciples will come and take away his body and lay it in a tomb. But that's where the comparison ends. As similar as their unjust arrests and deaths might be, there is one glorious difference this Easter morning, brothers and sisters. Every other political and and religious leader stayed where John was put, in the grave. But the evil and death that has defeated every righteous prophet has finally been conquered in Jesus. So our third point, righteousness victorious. Righteousness victorious. In the death of John, righteousness has been defeated. But in the death of Jesus, evil and death have been defeated. What is a a tragic ending for John is the disarming of evil for our Lord and Savior. You see, when, when Jesus was seized and bound, when he was executed despite having done nothing deserving death, he was not dying for his own sins. As as righteous as John was, he died as a sinner in need of a Savior. But when Jesus died, he did not die for his own sins. He had no sins to die for. Rather, he died for the sins of others. Not as a a mere man, a prophet, but as the God-man. Not particularly suffering the pain of crucifixion, but the pain of God's wrath against Sin. We, in the darkness of our sin, of our usurping of God's place rightfully at the center, we deserve God's justice. He is good to be opposed to our evil, to condemn it, and more with than just words, but with his justice. One day, the God who made the heavens and earth very good will remove all the evil that our sins have brought into his world, including our evil, our sexual sin, our fear of man, our anger. But God has made a way for us to be saved from what our evil deserves. He sent his son Jesus Christ to be more than just a righteous prophet. As God in the flesh, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The life that that you and I should have lived. He lived that life for us. And then willingly died on the cross in our place. Yes, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Pilate 
crucified him, but it was our sin that hung him on that tree. It's as the hymn puts it, and we confess this morning, who was the guilty who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, not Judas's, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I, not Peter, I, it was, denied thee. I, not Pilate, I crucified thee. Easter is not primarily about pastel colors, flowers blooming, the warm weather. Easter is about the brightness of dawn on the darkness of our sins. In order to understand the meaning of this day, you must first feel the darkness and gravity of your sins, what your sins deserve and what your sins did. Your sins crucified Jesus, but they did not defeat Jesus. When on that Sunday morning, Mary and the women arrived at the early tomb and found it empty, evil and death had been decisively defeated. Romans 1.4 tells us what this resurrection declared to the cosmos. Paul writes, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Don't misinterpret who Jesus is like Herod did. By His resurrection from the dead, God has proclaimed to all His identity. There can be no confusion. Sure, Herod might have confused his his early miraculous powers for John Risen. But this miracle, the miracle of his resurrection from the dead, is utterly unique. It's as Jesus himself explains to us in John 5.36. He says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, That the Father has sent me. The works that Jesus did are greater than those of John. Sent from the Father. And the greatest of these works is not his healing or even his teaching. But his substitutionary death on the cross. And his resurrection from the grave. Exalted now to the Father's right hand. But his resurrection is, is more than just proof that he is from the Father. No, no, it is utterly essential for our salvation, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, we are all destined to receive what our sins deserve. God's righteous judgment. If he had not been raised, then then righteousness is defeated. If they had found his body in that tomb, evil would still reign. But because Christ is risen from the dead, evil has been opposed and defeated. Yours included, if, if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, placing your hope in his resurrection from the dead. 
We read this earlier in, in Romans 9, the promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Take note of the promise, especially if you are here this morning and you have not confessed faith in Jesus. This is a certain promise. If you now believe that he was raised from the dead and confess that him, he is Lord, you will You will be saved. You won't be saved because of what you do, but because of what He has done for you. And that salvation, this gift, comes with a new life. Because Jesus was raised to new life, we we receive new spiritual life in Him. We have a, a new life with God, a new life now marked by love of righteousness and a fear of God. Christian, our ability to be like John, to love righteousness and oppose what is evil, is rooted in this new life we have in Christ. It must be given to us. And of course, those who have this new life will love righteousness and oppose evil no matter what the world does, as much as it may hate us, even when it kills us. Like John, our divine love of righteousness in opposition to evil will mean we are hated and marginalized in the world. We will be opposed and even sometimes killed. But we learn from the example of John this morning that we should not fear any man knowing that Christ has been victorious over evil and death. Though our sins brought him to the cross, he triumphs over them. He suffered for us and was raised victorious over the grave. Christian, our hope this morning is to abide in the only durable place for our hopes. Throughout history, there have been countless religious and political leaders, from from Moses to John the Baptist to Gandhi, from, from David to Herod to Lincoln, But when it comes to the grave, only one has climbed out. Every other religious and political leader is so easily defeated. But there is someone we can trust that will never disappoint. Someone that will ultimately have victory over every evil. Because he is risen indeed. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, our hearts magnify you this morning. In your glorious victory over sin and death and evil in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Lord, we confess this morning that he is Lord. We believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead and take certainty that we will be saved. That no matter what man may threaten us, we are eternally secure in him. Lord, we proclaim our trust in you, that we are safe in him. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace today to fear no man as we rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.